Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The bookshelf is pleased to be the official bookseller at the Eden Mills Writers Festival, taking place in Guelph and Eden Mills, September 13th to 15th, featuring the Joel Plaskett Emergency, Michael Pollan, Jim Guthrie, Emma Donahue, Thomas King, and many more. You can learn about the 25th anniversary edition at EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. On Tuesday, September 10th at 7.30 p.m., the E-Bar welcomes acclaimed author Mary Swan, who reads from her new book, My Ghosts. In the Bookshelf Cinema this week, you can see Unfinished Song, The Great Gatsby, Blackfish, and Blue Jasmine. And you can visit the bookstore for all the latest books, including those by authors at the Eden Mills Writers Festival and many, many more. The Bookshelf is located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Visit bookshelf.ca for more information. Creative Control with Vish why, hello once again. Thank you for checking out another episode of the show. And uh, I have a good one for you today. An extensive interview with Joel Plaskett, a man I've admired for uh, over 20 years now. I, I first saw his band when I was a, a younger person. And uh, he has uh, gone from being in this great band, Thrush Hermit, to having a very fruitful solo uh, career and a uh, big crossover kind of audience. You know, he's got. He's, he's now in this place where old people like him, young people like him, people in the middle of those two like him. He's great. And he's playing Guelph uh, on Friday, September 13th for the Eden Mills Writers Festival, so it seemed like a good time to connect again with Joel. So stay tuned. Here we go. Me and Joel Plaskett. It's going to be fun for everyone, including you. Picture yourself surrounded by grass and trees under a bright blue, early autumn sky. There's music playing, and you're close to the riverbank of one of the prettiest villages in Ontario, where the best emerging and established writers in Canada have gathered together for 25 years now. They're reading from works geared towards adults, teenagers, kids, and families, and you are engaged, laughing your head off, maybe even moved to tears. This is Sunday afternoon at the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, located just 10 minutes east of Guelph. Join us for our 25th anniversary, September 13th to 15th, in Guelph and Eden Mills. For more information about our accessible all-ages schedule, buying tickets, and shuttle service from Guelph, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca.
Joel Plaskett is one of the most accomplished, prolific musicians, songwriters, and producers to ever call Halifax, Nova Scotia home. 20 years ago, he made his first great inroads as an artist in the hugely influential underground rock band Thrush Hermit. And when that group stopped playing together at the end of the last century, Plaskett began a successful solo career, releasing some of Canada's most essential rock and folk albums. He runs his own label, New Scotland Records, highlighting the work of other artists that he loves. And he continues to be a tremendous live performer and engaging storyteller. The Joel Plaskett Emergency released a cool record in 2012 called Scrappy Happiness, and they returned to Guelph for a show at the River Run Center on Friday, September 13th, as part of the 25th anniversary edition of the Eden Mills Writers Festival. Here now to discuss some of these things is Joel Plaskett. Uh, hi, Joel. How are you? I'm well, Vish. That's good to hear. Where in the world are you right now, Joel? Sitting in the uh, lobby. I don't know if you can hear the echo uh, over the uh, over the line of uh, the lobby of my recording studio, the New Scotland Yard in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Oh, nice. Well, I didn't. You got a lobby. That sounds fancy. It sounds like you got a hotel. Well, yeah. I mean, it, we record in the lobby too, but it's you know, for all intents and purposes, the lobby until it's part of the studio. But I have it's it's another room other than the other uh, other than the main room. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's a pool table in it. So does that it, that does that make it a lobby or? Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's sort of the could be the bar, I suppose. If there's booze, you know, it could be. Uh, we could we could it, it can change. It's a multi-purpose room. It's sitting sounds, in the multi-purpose room of the New Scotland Yard in Dartmouth. I, I would call it a lounge. It sounds more like a lounge. A lounge. There we go. That's that's. It is a bit more like a lounge. Yeah, a bit of a it's sort of a it's a club a club, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I've got. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm it's, it's. It's. It. I had to bring the vibe. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Are you? Are you? Are you? <laughs> I had to create it, actually. <laughs> Are you in the lobby, or rather the lounge of your studio, because you're working on something today? Um, uh, no, I was down here um, to, uh, to actually, I met with somebody else to do another interview today here down at the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sitting in the lounge <laughs> because it's where the landline uh, is, because I keep the phones out of the main room of the studio. So oh, okay. It's not ringing in there. Smart, yeah. smart thinking there. The last time you and I were... Yeah. T- together, it was just a couple, three, four weeks ago in Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, you were at the Peterborough Folk Festival. Uh, how was your experience yeah. there? Very, very fun, actually. I really, really enjoyed that show. Uh, I like the venue a lot. It's, and I like getting to Peterborough because it's not a place I can be all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really, and, you know, my my dad was with me, so it was a, it's always nice getting out on the road a bit with him and, and playing yeah, I want to ask about your dad. Uh, your dad, Bill, was with you, as you say, and he played some songs. Uh, I'm curious, when did playing together with your dad become a thing? Because as someone who's followed your your work for some time, it just sort of started to happen all of a sudden. It, all of a sudden, you were playing with your dad. Well, around three, it kind of may is when it really, uh, I think, got, you know, became more like, hey, let's go do this. Although there was a tour previous to that um, that I did with my father, where I got, uh, I did some shows with Kathleen Edwards um, years ago. Um, I did some stuff in the States with her, as well as over in the UK with her, but also did a handful of Canadian dates where um, uh, I was playing acoustic uh, before her full band and I brought my dad along. So that was a cool, that was the first time I took him on tour. That would have been 2000 and I don't know what five or six kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I made three, my dad was pretty involved on that record. I got him to play a bunch of guitar. Uh, we wrote that song, Heartless, Heartless, Heartless together. And then, um, 
Uh, and so when I get the opportunity, if I've got a show where I think it's, 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 uh, the timing is right and he's available, but also the show is sort of a theater or a quieter event or something that has a folk leaning, like a folk festival, then, uh, it makes a lot of sense to bring him. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just trying to, we, I got, I'm going to be doing some dates with him in, uh, in October, November as well. Uh, I'm going to do a Toronto show. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I, I really like playing acoustic shows sometimes, but when I can have my dad there, it brings a certain uh, authority to the uh, to the endeavor. You kind of like I, I I feel you know less like you know Steve Malkmus and more like Bert Yanch. <laughs> sure, sure. Then that, that, I I can appreciate that. What's your dad's musical background exactly? Um, uh, he's uh, he's from England. He immigrated here in the late sixties. He's a he's a great guitar player, you know. I mean, I inherited my love of like British folk stuff from him and his record collection. So Bert Yanch, you know, and I re- I don't really feel like Bert Yanch, but I love Bert Yanch's music. Uh, Bert Yanch, Richard Thompson, um, uh, you know, the Fairport Convention stuff, um, you know, and and for me it all connected the dots to like Led Zeppelin, who I was totally obsessed with as a teenager. So when I realized that they were just like ripping off these other guys on the acoustic side of things, and it kind of dove into that and um yeah but he's a really he's a my dad's a great musician he's a really steady uh finger pick finger picking guitar player plays with metal finger picks and and that really brings this kind of like metered steadiness to the to the to to, to songs um i'm kind of flighty in the way i play and so uh i think it comes out of playing a lot of electric and over a three piece so i can kind of weave around but when i'm playing with my dad he can really like push things forward because his, his playing is very measured and I really I really like it. I play a lot of tenor guitar and he plays a lot of six string and, and the weave between the two to me is really nice um, and I think it's a good balance because they complement each other tonally when you listen to like some of the old country and western duos like the Delmore Brothers I'm pretty sure that they were playing like tenor and six the Louvins I think might have been the same thing so those two instruments really uh, work nicely together. Yeah, no, it sounded great in Peterborough, and every time I've seen you and your dad play together, it does. It's, it, it sounds amazing. Was he? You kind of mentioned some touchstones for yourself there, and in terms of things that may have influenced your father. But was your dad the reason you you started playing music uh, when you were younger? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I certainly the influence of the desire to play music. I, I would credit being around a musical house. My mom did uh, was uh, did some dancing when she was. Uh, she could she danced quite a bit. She used to teach it. Uh, um, uh, but but my dad was always playing. Growing up in Lunenburg, he was one of the people who helped start the folk festival. There would be I remember like you know Neil Benoit after the first year of the Lunenburg Folk Festival. The, the party was hosted at my at my folks' house after the. I was probably in grade five or six at that point. You know and um, and so you know I remember these like scuffs on the kitchen floor from Neil Benoit. Uh, stomping his feet with like you know boots on or something while he's playing fiddle, um, and uh, so you know grew up around it. And uh, but but my actual desire to play music, I it's funny. My friend Phil, one of my my oldest friend Phil, he asked my dad to play, teach me guitar. I didn't want to learn it. I I, I was initially into I had a drum set for a while, and then I tried saxophone, <laughs> failed at that. Um, I wasn't interested in guitar at all. And my dad would have been perfectly willing to teach me, but I didn't have the desire or the patience. Phil got into it, and became like virtuosic by the age of thirteen. It was when I moved to um, Halifax to Clayton Park. And when I was 12, and I met Ian McGettigan and Rob Benvey in the first 
um, days of school there at Clayton Park Junior High, grade seven, and uh, we were hanging out, you know, playing video games and this and that, but um, music became a real uh, kind of, like at that point, that's when you're really getting into it, and I, I had my musical taste, Chuck Berry, Suicidal Tendencies were two of my favorites, and um, <laughs> and and Rob Rob got an electric guitar, and because uh, he took an interest in that. He was really into punk rock. We were all getting into the Sex Pistols and stuff like that, too. And classic rock, you know, Pink Floyd and Zeppelin, basically. And um, Rob got an electric guitar, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I can borrow my dad's acoustic. If he can teach me, if I learn guitar, then we can start a band. Like, for me, it was a purely social desire to have something to do with these guys who I was friends with. Um and I guess the idea of like just being in a band or playing music seemed really cool all of a sudden, like I had no interest. And then all of a sudden when I saw that it would have like a social uh, implication to it, that's when I, that's when it got interesting. Whereas it, it wasn't like a, so, and it, and it very quickly turned into uh, something that I wanted to express myself with. Like I pretty, once I learned a few chords, I started trying to write songs and things like that. And so, uh, I, and I think that probably, I was around. It was it was my dad's influence, and I would say it was Rob uh, and Ian. But uh, really, to credit Rob in the sense that Ian got right into bass, and he went because he wanted. To, it was the same thing, social for Ian, I think, and the mm. idea of doing something cool and kind of being part of a spectacle. But Rob really was really into songwriting and writing. I mean, he's he's a published author now as well, right? And he was always like, even at like fourteen, fifteen writing like long songs with tons of words, you know, based on like an article he'd read in Rolling Stone about like the violence of the Chicago police. He wrote a song called Chicago Death Police about <laughs> like something he knew nothing about. Um, but it, you know what I mean? Other than like what he'd read from a Rolling Stone article, but it was awesome. You know, like the intention was there and the kind of like the desire to like, he was really into the clash. Right. So, um, but he was writing great words from a really young age. Um, and uh, that he really, uh, spurred me on to kind of want to uh, to do to do the same thing or to to, to contribute something. And the first band that you guys had together was was it Nabisco Fonzie? Is that the first one? Yeah, yeah. The first time we got together and jammed, I brought over my cut-in acoustic guitar, a Hondo that my dad. No, I think it was just my father's acoustic. I don't even think I have my own at this point. And then uh, Ian borrowed a. No, we didn't even have a bass. Rob had an electric guitar, like a. What kind of guitar was it? Like a signature A or whatever they were called. Series, a Series A. Uh-huh. And a PV Rage amplifier. And they had a drum set because both Ian and Rob were taking percussion. So he had a drum set that they rented from the school um, or something like that. And so we got together in Rob's garage and we started, like, we jammed on House of the Rising Sun and A Whole Lot of Love. And, uh, and uh, oh, anything else like that we had, like, gotten some tablets or four. And uh, Ian would just sing, Rob would play drums, and I would play guitar, or sometimes, you know, and that's how it worked. And we called her, and we, when we finished that day, we were like, Nabisco, Nabisco Disco, and then Ian goes, Nabisco Fonzie, like, I think we even <laughs> have the recording of us coming up with the name, you know, uh, and that's, and away we went. Uh, uh, it was pretty funny, man. And so Nabisco Fonzie lasted for about two or three rehearsals or, you know, or you know, maybe it was even four months or something. And then we, we became, we asked our friend Alex Grace to play drums. Right. We became the Hoods. And then uh, right towards the tail end of the Hoods, we played a gig at the Shearwater Yacht Club. 
uh, we were in grade nine. Uh, Alex's older brother, Owen, wanted us to said, oh, my buddy's throwing a party at the Shearwater Yacht Club. You guys, and he's like, my, my brother's in a band. Like, we were just kids. We go, this was like, I think the summer of grade nine, and we went and played, and they gave us, I think we got some, we got, we got some pizza from them, and they gave us, an, and, we, and, we, and we, were, we were mad that we didn't get paid, which was ridiculous. We <laughs> and we stole, we stole an empty keg of beer. <laughs> we, thought, we thought it would be a full keg, but it was, it was an empty keg of beer. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and that, so and at that point, I think right around there, we changed our name to Thrush Hermit, and then we kicked Alex out of the band. <laughs> After his brother got us our only gig. Um, and we made Rob do it. We were like, Rob, you know Alex is the best, man. You guys are best friends. you got to tell him. <laughs> why did you total, kick uh, Alex out of the great band? Guy. Drama, yeah. you know, drama. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, why, we, did, why, why did he have to go? Alex out of the, uh, he, what, Alex was, like, he was kind of noncommittal. Like, we would rehearse in his basement. We, we, we did have a great jam space in his basement. But he would watch Family Ties while we were rehearsing, and he would constantly <laughs> turn the beat around. <laughs> so we'd be like, you know, like he would always turn around, and he'd be watching Family Ties the whole time. So uh, we just, we eventually, we, 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 we caught word that there was this uh, drummer named Mike Catano um, from downtown. That I think, I forget if Ian and Rob had met him through percussion, maybe. And uh, and Mike was a good drummer, and he was younger than a year younger than us. And, um, so we uh, we had eyes on Mike. I think at this point it was like you know you know dramatic conversations secretly in my backyard. We got to do something. We got to we got to get Mike to play <laughs> if we're gonna get a gig at you know at the you know if we're gonna ever get a gig downtown kind of thing or whatever. You know it's like it got very serious all of a sudden. But um, I don't think Alex holds holds any. It was not a big deal. Uh, but um, it was it was a big deal at the time. So uh, yeah, that's we went on from there and became Thrusherman with Mike for a couple of years, and then then we <laughs> then we kicked Mike out of the band and asked Cliff Gibb to play with us. We were ruthless, you know. Yeah, we were young and ruthless. You know? Going but, through uh, going through drummers like Cliff was with us for many years. Yeah, it was, and then Cliff Cliff eventually quit after making Clayton Park, and we had Ben Ross for the last year of the Hermit, mm-hmm. which was quite mighty playing with band. Um, so yeah, we, we, we had some good drummers, some of whom, you know, I guess we finally got dumped. So we, you know, like, by, by Cliff, he, he, you know, not that he, so, so it, it came back to bite us. In the <laughs> uh, for the record, family ties, family ties is a good show. I don't I actually don't blame Alex for watching family ties. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, and, and frankly, you know, what we were playing, maybe he just thought we were too pedestrian, you know, he was like, ah, I'll phone this in. <laughs> you know. well, Chicago well, death, please, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, with Thresh Hermit, you were part of this uh, wave of independent music culture in the early 90s that I, I kind of feel like it's really the main reason that that culture is still thriving today. Like, you guys were part of the foundation of it. Can you talk about what got you into that culture? Well, I think just the we were we were in the right place at the right time when the scene was percolating and happening. I mean, one of the the first show I saw downtown. I think like what what happened with Thrush in the early days of the, the, the hoods and Thrush Room is we discovered CKDU, uh, the college station, from Clayton Park. You know, we could get reception and we would listen to that. 
you'd call in and drive the DJ nuts and stuff. And these brats who would just phone in on the late night show, like at three in the morning, we'd call the overnight show and go, can you play Kiss? I'm not playing Kiss, kid. <laughs> we'd call back every five minutes for half an hour until they finally played Lick It Up and they'd talk over it the whole time, you know? Um, but uh, we suddenly were kind of through CKDU and our just sort of pilgrimages downtown to Taz Records and stuff. We were like, wait, oh, there's local shows. So we went to the green room and saw, I remember going to the green room over March break, I think it was grade eight or nine and, and seeing uh, Kearney Lake Road, the Straight Jackets, uh, No Damn Fears, which was Dave Marsh's band. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kearney Lake Road was Chris and Jay's band, Pretty Sloan. Uh, there was a couple other bands on the bill. Hector's Body from Moncton. And I think Tetris, maybe. Um, anyway, like it was like, whoa, there's local music. Like we, we thought we were like a band in isolation, you know? And then we realized there was bands downtown. And then we found out that and then Sloan, then Kearney Lake Road broke up and Sloan started playing. And I saw Sloan's second show. They played their first show at the Art College, so I couldn't go because I was too young. But then they played their second show. And we were being given like four-track demos that Sloan were doing at the time via Dave Pierce, our friend who was a drummer, a year older than us, who was the, the younger brother of Jenny Pierce, who was friends with Chris, who had been dating Chris. They were and Jenny played in jail later, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so Jenny had all these Sloan demos that Chris was doing and four-tracking, and Jenny was singing on them, right, too, and then and stuff like that. And uh, and so so we were getting all... I have the first four-track of Underwhelmed somewhere, you know, in my collection. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were listening to that stuff, you know, in grade 10 uh, and going... or something like that. It would have been 10 or 11. I'm trying to remember when that gets blurry for me, but... 90, 90, 90, 91 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoa, this band is awesome. And I saw, saw the second show and really kind of like floored me, you know, because they were just like older, seven years older than us, all those guys, and just like cool band had already been playing in other bands. And they were like a force, you know, a messy force to be reckoned with. And there was a lot of energy there and really good songs happening. And we were very much influenced by that. By the time we got our own gig at the Pub Flamingo on a Two Buck Tuesday, we posted the hell out of downtown, like, and we drew more people to our first show on a tuba on a Tuesday. We packed the flamingo. We put 200 people in the place, huh. and uh, and and Peter Rowan, who was booking the club, we at, on the two buck Tuesdays, we had given him a demo tape, and literally called him Mr. Rowan at this point. Uh, Mr. Rowan, can we play at, at the Pump Flamingo? You know, we're these kids from Clayton Park, and I think he just saw the spirit. He was like. Sure, if you can draw some people. So we went nuts and called on all our friends from high school. You know, this was like grade, grade ten or eleven, eleven, yeah, eleven, ten maybe even. And yeah, and and we and we we uh, we packed the joint. And uh, Chris was there from Sloan. He saw us and he came up to me. I remember in the bathroom and he goes, "You guys are pretty good." And we had done a Kiss song. We played Strutter. And he was a big Kiss fan. He goes, "We should do a Kiss tribute sometime." And I was like, "Oh my God, Chris just said we should do a Kiss tribute sometime." <laughs> like telling the other guys, you know, or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally, you know. And away we go. And we were really pumped. And and they took us under their wing and uh, eventually put out our records on Murder. And we got a publishing. The Harper's Bazaar came up. Big part of it was Harper's Bazaar came up. A writer from a writer for Harper's came up. A guy named Brad Gooch, I think, was his name. He came up in like. 93 and wrote an article on the Halifax scene while we were still in high school. He interviewed us. We were just like, you know, chatty brats. And, but we were part of this article. I had my photo in Harper's Bazaar when I was like 17, you know, huh. 
and uh, and 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 we were like uh, we got a publishing deal out of that. Uh, a guy named Clyde Lieberman signed us to BMG Publishing out of New York because he met Brad and he goes, man, there's these kids up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's got this weird happening scene, man. It's weird, and he just flew up on a whim, saw us, and liked our energy, and signed us to a public a developmental publishing deal where we got some money. Um, but you know, bought a van, started giving ourselves like we graduated high school basically. Got a van, started giving ourselves like 200 bucks a month so that we could justify to our parents that we were doing something, and went on tour that summer right out of high school with Hartshed Post, I remember, and then we toured with Sloan in the fall, and uh, kind of the rest is history, right place at the right time, you know. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it, and you were well connected at that point, and, and you you are part of a community. I'm curious if you're concept of musical community and what it means has shifted much from from these days that you're talking about your early days yeah i mean it was a different energy when you're young and and you're kind of you're you're part of um you know you're part of a community it was you know you have and you have all the energy in the world i mean i remember being everywhere all the time (laughs) if that makes any sense you know what i mean like it was like uh, it was it's saturday morning at 10 o'clock and i'm at the i'm in the parking lot of the Hollis Street liquor store playing hockey with with Dave Marsh and Greg Clark and Chris Murphy and all these guys who are older than us, you know. And then then like I'm up at and it's two AM and I'm in Clayton Park listening to records with my friends. Like it's like everything all the time, living and breathing it. Like mm. nothing, you know. Uh just learning stuff. I remember sitting at the at Hollis and Moore Street I was probably eighteen and Chris and Jenny singing me I am the cancer just acoustically for the first time like before it was recorded or anything and just being like completely floored, you know, like just, I was like present for these things that were really exciting to me at the time. Like just really like every music being made and, and all the time in the world and desire to do something. Hmm. Uh, and so I really felt there was a sense, there was a sense of community there, but it's sort of blurred by my youthful, you know, eyes. Like now I, I can recognize it for what it is, or, but at the same time when I was living it, it was just like, just kind of like go time, you know, and I mean, I'm romanticizing it because why not, you know, um, but uh, I really, uh, I feel lucky to have been part of the scene when it was happening and then I feel lucky to have kind of come through that. It changed. A lot of people left in the late 90s and and, and the nature of it changed. It went a little bit for a while there and, and, and it's maybe changing a bit again back, but it went from sort of in the 2000s, became more of a like singer-songwriter is sort of the story out here now, very much so. Yeah. And I'm part of that. Yeah. Kind of went from band, of a band-driven scene to a kind of songwriter's-driven scene. Yeah, do you have a take, you know, on, do you um, have a take on why that happened? Because, I mean, at some point, the grind got to Thresh Hermit and, and the grind of doing what you guys were doing. And you needed to move on, well, and I'm curious about what prompted that, and why you suppose, as you say, it is a weird. Well, it's not weird, but it's definitely a trend. Well, uh, a democracy is a hard thing to hold on to for a long time. Like at a certain point, you know, you if you start putting it under, if you start doing something totally on your own steam, or if you're not having to kind of like, we, everything was a group decision, and at a certain point, it kind of like would stall us. And 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 you're also you can only be on the same page with like your oldest friends for so long, and by the time everybody's twenty four, twenty five, they start uh, imagining like maybe a different universe that they can be in for a while. You know, I think everybody's just kind of ready, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things about the fact that I was in the Hermit is like the fact that I got to do these things with my friends. We were never like the most successful band. We had some fans, and it was good, but I nonetheless felt like I was in the Who. 
you know, like the who were like 17 when they toured America for the first time. Keith Moon couldn't get into bars. They were super young, you know, mm-hmm. and I felt like I like if I look back on it and even if I think about it, I feel like it had that kind of like just total camaraderie, camaraderie and like weird, you know, and, 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 and just kind of like peculiar energy. It was like singular, uh, despite the, the, the fact that there was four guys, it felt singular, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I, you can't, but you can't, you can't have that forever. Uh, at least I, I it was difficult to, and, and it, that band sort of broke up, you know, partly because Rob wanted to go on to other things and that sort of pulled the pin out of the grenade. And then that was that. So, um, uh, you know, but it's certainly easier to move forward when you're, when you brand it, not brand it, that sounds really kind of like calculated, but when you, when you put your own name on it and you kind of go, you make it easier. So this is Joel Plaskin or it's the Joel Plaskin emergency, which is a band, but these are my songs and this is the artwork that I've decided on. And these are the songs I want to put on the record. And, you know, I make the decisions and move forward as opposed to have a conversation about the decisions that last for, you know, ever. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'd, I'd never heard that it was sort of Rob's call to uh, stop the band. I kind of because he, he was the first one. Yeah, yeah. Because you had made yeah. a, in need of medical attention while you were still in Threshermit, right? Yeah, and I think maybe there was a sort of in general. I think Rob just. Uh, I think he just kind of he he was starting to, you know, I was pushing Threshermit probably in a direction that was focusing a little bit more, like Clayton Park presented me more in the lead singer role, despite the fact that Rob, you know, Rob still sang a bit on that record, but I contributed a lot of material as well as even sang a bit of uh, like Western Dreams, Rob's song. So I, you know, I was sort of starting to push in that way. I think I didn't, uh, it's not that I didn't want to be part of a democracy, but I kind of felt like, uh, you know, I felt like I wanted to front that band a bit more. Yeah. Um, And I made a need of medical attention to kind of fulfill my like desire to do some folky stuff. And so I was, pushing out a bit in a diff- in in a few different ways. And I think probably Rob just looked at it and was like, well, Joel obviously wants to go into, you know, maybe he didn't see a role for himself as much. Um, but, you know, I don't know. You'd have to ask him, but it was, it was, it was tough. Like there was, it was definitely like at that in the last days of the hermit, there was some tension there and we're all friends, but it was like, you know, it's not easy when you've been in a band forever and everybody, and you don't, and, you, and you're not totally seeing eye to eye. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like there's still a lot of we all have good feelings and memories. And when we did our reunion tour, it was just like totally awesome and joyous and really fun. Um, but you know, at the time, it was like, well, it came to an end, and it was partly Rob saying, I can't, do, I don't want to do this anymore. And then Ian and I looked at each other. At this point, Ben was our drummer, but it was really the core of the band was Ian, Rob, and I. And, and, and it was like, and if Ian and I looked at each other, I was like, ah, well, if Rob's not in, you know, the kind of the center, you know. It's, the tri- it's not. A, there's no. There's no triangle here. It's just two lines. <laughs> right. You know? And I mean, it's probably telling that you and Ian went on to work together quite a, quite a lot. Absolutely. And Ian and Rob went on to work together quite a lot. That's right. You know. Yeah. So Ian was the Ian was the glue that held Rob and I together. And Rob <laughs> and I had a very deep uh, um, connection on a writing level. I think like we would talk a lot about lyrics and what things were about, and we would push things forward. I think in in the idea of like. In a lyrical way, Ian was very much about what we were doing if we were building a neon rock and roll song, neon rock and roll song sign, or you go, uh, uh, I, I, I breathe fire now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> wicked, Ian, you know, great. All right, breathe fire at the beginning of the show. Rob and I would like really get into the kind of like the cerebral, like brass tacks of the 
of the tunes. Ian was into production as well. Ian was like, I want to make it sound heavy. Let's like, how did the Black Sabbath get their snare drum sound? You know, mm-hmm. uh, Rob and I would be like, you know, what makes Joe Strummer so awesome? Like, you know, we're just talking about, you know, we would connect in that way. Yeah. But Ian was the kind of energy that held our two different approach, our two different personalities of like creative stuff together. Ian was the, Ian was the energy in the middle that navigated that. I imagine it was quite fatiguing for us sometimes. Right. You, you mentioned uh, that uh, towards the end of the 90s, a, a lot of people left Halifax. You've kind of made several references to this in your songs. You, you know, they're just like, people just left for Toronto and Montreal and, and took off. But you stayed, and some people wondered why. And I, I've never really spoken to you about why you would have stayed uh, and, uh, you know, while other people left to do other things. Why, what, what kept you in, uh, in the Maritimes? Well, I um, I think probably uh, maybe a healthy fear of being elsewhere uh, or just not a desire. I guess I saw these places. You know, I went to New York when I was, you know, 18 or 19 touring. And, you know, I got to go to a lot of big cities and spend time there. I, I, I grew up in Lunenburg until I was 12. And so um, that was a small town of 3,000 people. So Halifax always felt like the big city. And, uh, and really, you know, so I, I, I think I just didn't. I didn't have the desire, uh, and 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 the other thing that happened is I had opportunities. I've been very very lucky to always kind of, to, you know, we, Hermit had an audience pretty quick because of the scene that we came out of, and I think I like to think that it had something to do with talent and enthusiasm. But we were lucky too. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I carried on with some of those fans. I, I dove in and started making my own music after The Hermit. Uh, it was, you know, pretty sort of flowed into that. And I, I just was like, I want to take it on. I never really, and I never had like a backup plan to go do something else. I never had like, it's time for me to go to school now or I should go find a job. It was always like, well, I have a job, you know, even if it's not making me a lot of money, I have a reason to go do this. And I, and I had very supportive parents too. Um, in terms of them not second guessing why or what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always, I, again, I was lucky. I had opportunities, people who were interested in seeing what I was doing. Uh, and used to make records. I did have a job for a couple of years at the public archives in the early two thousands, which helped me bankroll down at the Kyber. I just sort of worked dubbing capes and then I would use that money to, to record at Charles's, uh, ultramagnetic studios. And then, uh, so I just, uh, the idea of leaving really, I was like, well, why? It's so much cheaper in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I've built a studio here now. I never, I would be 55 before I would be able to probably find the same, you know, level of comfort if I were in Toronto just because it's so expensive to really set up shop there. So I've been really lucky in, in, in here in, in, in Halifax, now Dartmouth. Um, to be a, and partly the reason I went to Dartmouth because it was cheaper. You know? <laughs> um, I, I feel like being in a place where you can afford to do what you want and make your decisions based on creative ones as opposed to solely doing something for money. Um, and I'm not saying you have to do that in Toronto. I'm just saying I was allowed to make records for record's sake because, um, you know, uh, by, 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 try, by trying to, if you, if you don't need a lot to get by, um, then you can make then you make decisions based on what you want to hear and what you want to present, as opposed to well, if I make this, it might make me some money. And, you know, I struck. I think I struck the balance on the East Coast, so I've, I've stayed. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. This leads nicely into my next question because you you've used the the term lucky a few times, but among our peers, you're someone who's regarded as really smartly melding a tremendous amount of talent with a super savvy business acumen, and it's totally logical, but why do you suppose you've been particularly successful at taking care of business on multiple levels, aside from, as you say, just having good fortune? Well, I've been blessed with pretty, uh, pretty a, a good upbringing, I think, you know. My, my mom, and my dad, but my mom is always like very sort of, she's, a, she, I think she, you know, very organized in her uh, approach to our household and stuff when we were kids. My dad's a little bit maybe more of a dreamer. I mean, a hard worker, too. So he's a total space cadet or anything. But, you know, artistic <laughs> soul, our player worked. You know, and my mom is artistic in her own way, but also very practical. Very, you know, not conservative in certain ways, not 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 sort of so, socially. You know, she, she's a very, like, she's a very forward-thinking woman, you know, a real feminist, actually. And but But, but kind of uh, but but pra- pra- pragmatic, if that's the right word, you know, yeah, yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah. forward, assertive, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And so I think I've, you know, I think I inherited a couple of different traits from my inherited creative streak and the desire to make stuff from my, my dad and my the support of my mom. And so I took that and then I married that with the fact that my mom's side of the family has a sort of a business sense that's not so much about, you know, it's not like about making money. But my grandfather was a doctor. Um, he came from Cape Breton from a pretty like humble upbringing in Cape Breton, but you know he, he managed to be he was a doctor in the south end of Halifax, which ended you know ended up being like kind of a, a, a wealthy neighborhood at least it is now. Um, and even then it was you know you know he was a doctor and then he was involved in Dow medicine and stuff. And but a very like he was a guy who my grandparents really just they they had four kids and they they armed their kids and their grandchildren, me and my sister like with kind of information and help. We, we, we received a lot of help, and you can't underestimate that. And uh, I think uh, I've been, and that's where I talk about luck too, or, you know, like the fact that I'm lucky to have been born into a family that made it easy. I'm not bragging, you know. I just mean it's like that part of the, it's just a fa- fact of the matter. I see it for what it is now because you see a lot of people, kids, all sorts of people who who, who, who struggle maybe because they, there was some kind of like something missing there, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying we don't have our weirdnesses and our problems as a family, we do, but uh, there's a lot of really things to feel blessed for, you know. Yeah, no, it seems like it, and it's I, I I'm glad you kind of explained that because I didn't really 
have much insight into how this this balance was instilled within you other than just doing it, you know? I mean, some people learn by experience, but it sounds like you had, as you say, like a, it's almost like a tradition that you come out of in your family to kind of keep your, well, eye, you know, one eye on your, I, on, on, yeah. on business and one eye on your, on your work. I think that's it. Part of it. And I think too, like, just again, it's like, I've been at it a long time and I've built it in a kind of grassroots way. I can be really sort of wishy-washy and undecided about stuff, but, um, I, uh, I've been able, I think, and I, I think this is also, I kind of have to thank my audience for this. Like I've, I've been lucky enough for some reason to kind of strike the balance between making something that I think has like some artistic merit, I hope, but also resonates with enough people that I'm not like, I'm not pushed into a corner that's just exclusively for the, for the people who care about lyrics or the people who care about this peculiar genre of music or whatever like I, I what i'm doing is i don't feel like it's entirely mainstream but i don't feel like i'm so outside of it mm-hmm. that uh, i haven't been able to like i benefit from the fact that i also like to put on a show like i get up on stage and i'll like i'll like it's you know uh you know i want to invent invent the duck walk like i haven't yet but i'm like I'm, <laughs> i want to figure out how i can like have a thing that people associate with me <laughs> you know what i mean um like i like entertainment and i like the idea of being an entertainer and take pride in that and also not, not get too precious about it. And so if you're willing to get out there and basically <laughs> put on a show, you know, and just leave it on the, leave what you have on the stage for people to kind of, then, then, then people respond. And I think by doing that, I've been able to sort of have, it's created a business essentially of people who are interested in like whatever my form of wacky rock and roll. And folk <laughs> music, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've been watching you play for almost, 20 years now I think and in Peterborough I was once again struck by your showmanship you have you do have this rare ability to connect and develop a rapport with your audience and I'm and you mentioned Chuck Berry and you mentioned the duck walk who for you are the great showmen and, and showwomen in music that kind of inform uh, your approach to, to actually you know managing an audience because not everyone is up for it you know and you're really great at talking to, to people and communicating and, and adding those flourishes within your songs too well, I mean, I was, when I was young, I saw um, I saw a Billy Bragg show that really blew my mind when I was 16 at the Pub Flamingo. I actually went with my dad. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was really great. He was so good. Just on a storytelling level, he was funny as hell. Mm. Um, so I really remember that show having an impact on me. Um, the energy of Sloan in the early days when we would see them and they were like, just kind of like manic and rolling around and just doing stupid stuff. Uh, that certainly influenced Thrush Hermit, you know, um, what we were called clone in the early days. <laughs> in a derogatory way. Uh, um, you know, but I mean like that, that just sort of Ian McGettigan, you know, man, that guy puts on a breathe fire and stuff, you know, I mean, I just, the idea of like spectacle is a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, but I, and I like, and then in more recent years, uh, Damien Dempsey from Ireland, he doesn't do anything spectacular in terms of like crazy stories or, or, uh, or, uh, or antics. There's really none of that. He's just like a guy with a guitar and I've seen him with his band as well, but he's a ferocious singer. Like he's so good and he just pours his heart into it. Like he's like, you just feel every note he sings. It's awesome. Huh. Um, 
I just really, really like him a lot, and he's a powerful performer. He's kind of like, he's a bit like an Irish Springsteen or something, you know? Maybe not quite as goofy as Springsteen can get. I mean, and there, that leads me, that, that's a good segue into the, uh, definitely a big influence is, is Bruce, uh, uh, in terms of his ability to, um, and I'd never seen him until a couple of years ago. I went with Elk, me and Pete Elkis flew down to Philly and saw him for two nights at the Spectrum before they tore it down. And that was the first time I'd seen him. Blew my mind, needless to say. But but really the Springsteen that influenced me was watching the live performance video of Rosalita in 78 or 9. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, like a 9 or 11 minute version or whatever it is. On much music, when much music actually wasn't much when there was music more music than much <laughs> right um you know uh they played it and i remember watching it at the age of i don't know 17 and being like and i was into like husker du and punk rock and all sorts of, you know and, and and classic rock too to be fair but i was watching i was like springsteen's cool <laughs> <laughs> you know like kind of just thinking whoa like that energy that total unbridled enthusiasm like you know, just like go, you know, the girl runs up on stage and kisses. He's like, whoa, you know, stop the show. Him, Clarence, up on the speaker cabinets, rocking out to each other and sliding on his knees. Total sort of like, you know, just fun, high energy, go for it. Crowds are right there with him. Band is cooking. Awesome. Yeah. So I, good. I, I, so. From my experience, and, and, you know, when I think of you, I actually think you do this as well. Like, from my experience seeing Springsteen, and I've talked to Pete Elkis about this a few times, he's one of the few performers where you kind of. The, the room feels as one, you know, like when he's on stage, you know, there's certainly a separation, but it doesn't feel like that. You you all no. kind of feel like you're enjoying something collectively and making it work together. Yeah. And he's there for you, you know, like that's, that's the magic of Springsteen is he sort of feels like he feels relatable and, but he can also control a room. He can go from like, you know, rock and roll covers, you know, or playing whatever, you know, like a yeah, like a, a a Motown song that he's covering and he's goofing around, or from crowd surfing or whatever he's doing, to like a total heartfelt, you know, ballad. Yeah. Um. And and he can change the show on a dime, you know, uh, and and really pull people along. And even you know, he works hard. He works hard. I mean, I I could never. Um. He's in such good shape. I mean, at least when I saw him, he's like sixty or whatever, and he's just like. Yeah, he's ripping. So fit, and he's ripping, you know? Like, I mean, he works at it. He obviously took, like, performing, like, so seriously, and he got so into, like, he's a very, he seems like a really, his work ethic's really strong. And, I mean, I admire that. I don't, um, I, you know, I'm I'm quite the opposite of my physicality, uh, you know, and I find myself very, very winded some nights where I'm like, man, I wish I could get some more air in my lungs to finish this, this like, 90 or to two-hour show, you know? Yeah. Usually, um, and, uh, and and uh, and so I, I you know I, but I I like the 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 um, the ethos or whatever the word is for yeah. he, the way he, the way he performs what he cares about and and really how he does it is awesome yeah yeah you know comedy and music always uh, have seemed to blur together for as long as I can I mean there's a historical sort of record of comedians opening for musicians and sometimes it happens vice versa what do you make of the idea that every comedian wants to be a musician and every musician a comedian because i I, you're you're a funny guy you're on stage you're playing your music but you're funny and i'm just curious about your take on the relationship between those two art forms well i mean i guess 
you know, laughing and crying are quite connected, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they are right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, uh, I think with comedians and probably with musicians, but a lot of comedians are pretty, they can be pretty sad people too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same can be for musicians. I think, you know, they're both kind of arts, you know, uh, and, and, and it, you, it can, you can be, a, there's a sort of vulnerability that comes with them. If you're making people laugh or you're trying to bring them into your songs, you're kind of, you're opening up a part of yourself, you know, and, and you're hoping <laughs> for the best that people will make a connection with it. They will laugh at you or they will sing along with your song and feel the emotion that you're trying to convey. And so you're putting yourself out there. And when they don't, it can be really hard. That's why if you're singing your own song, something that you spent a long time writing or that's really dear to your heart or whatever, and then everybody's talking over it, it's like, Oh my God, you know, it can be, it feels really bad. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't maybe feel as bad if you were playing Brown Eyed Girl, right? You know, because you'd be like, yeah, yeah, everyone's heard Brown Eyed Girl and this isn't my song. Maybe it would hurt Van Morrison's feelings, you know? Um, but um, I don't know. I think that uh, if you can make people laugh, then, then their guard goes down. And then when you do something, you say something heartfelt or you sing something. Or in a movie, if you're laughing and then all of a sudden something tragic happens, you feel the tragedy that much more because you were like your your defenses went down because you were laughing. Huh. That's so a, that's really I think interesting. that they that's sometimes why I like, you know, a degree of comedy or I like to make people laugh because I feel like it sets up another moment in the show where I might talk about something that I really care about, uh, and I care about laughing too. Don't get me wrong, you know. I mean, I in generally I'm I'm a pretty happy person. I love to you know I like to. <laughs> yeah, I like I like I like I like quips. I like people. I like a little a degree of combat or ed, some form of edginess. But I'm also not, you know, I'm also I'm pretty vanilla as well. You know, well, you're not belligerent. But, uh, you're not belligerent about it. But yeah, no, that's, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I just like I'm, I'm, I like things that push buttons a little bit. You know. Yeah, I've never heard of. That's really interesting the way you put it. Like comedy is kind of a mechanism of trust. Like basically, people you win their trust with the odd joke or quip and then then they're listening to you and that for some reason well, look look at rob delaney do you follow him to, on twitter oh yes i do yeah he's funny as hell right i mean and sometimes he's disgusting and filthy but he is like he works at tangents and he i get you know he gives me a lot of laughs he's funny as hell um and he's and he's really got the art form of you know the the, the or the format of twitter down to work to his advantage you know but every once in a while, he writes something political, or he talks about something he cares about, and you listen to him. You 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 trust you trust him on some level because he has made you laugh, and you think this guy's funny. But then he talks about something that he cares about, and you're like, and it's not to say that everybody who's reading him agrees with him, but he's not afraid to put himself out there politically or about something that he actually cares about, and he's using comedy as his medium, you know. Yeah. Um and I think that that's really uh I think it's it's actually really it's a very refined art form even when it's filthy it's just toilet humor or whatever. What he's actually doing is quite nuanced and and really uh and really really brilliant, you know. And you can see why so many people are following him because they're responding to that. And some people are probably just like, you know, whatever they're just they're just laughing at it and when he goes political that pisses him off or whatever mm-hmm. they don't agree you know for me like i buy it i think that he's uh, he's 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 it's it's working you know yeah no for sure no and again i'm really glad i asked you this question because i you know it's kind of a out of left field for you but i i it's great that was a great answer i in peterborough you played some new songs 
and uh, they're really great. Among them was one that has a humorous story to it, Park Avenue Sobriety Test. Yeah, 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 the Park Avenue Sobriety Test. Um, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's really new. Yeah, I got the idea for it from uh, um, uh, the title for it, anyway, from, uh, from a guy in my neighborhood named Roy, a neighbor of mine. And uh, I saw this bent guardrail, and I was like, hey, Roy, did you see the guardrail that the car ran into? And he goes, yeah, man, that's the Park Avenue Sobriety Test. <laughs> I was like, "Thanks for the song title, Roy." <laughs> See you, man. Um, uh, you know, was, I just thought it was, sounded like a Kink song, like Village Green Preservation Society. Um, uh, and so uh, I, uh, um, you know, even sobriety and society—they—they—they they, they yes, rhyme. It's, yes. it, 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 it's very Kinks, very Ray Davies. Um, but I, uh, yeah, and then, and then the kind of it dawned on me a few days after filing that song title away, what I might actually write about, which is. Um, I don't know. You have to hear the song. Yeah, yeah, It yeah. kind of works. It works. It works at tangents, but uh, I think it's pretty. It's got some. Yeah, it's got a few punchlines in it for sure. No, it's a good one. Are, is, does this uh, suggest that uh, you've got uh, recording plans coming up that we need to know about? Is there news in either your camp or the the emergency camp that we need to know? Uh, no, not nothing other than I plan to do something. I just don't know what it is yet. I'm 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 collecting the songs. I'm playing a one or two live here to see what people respond to. And I haven't decided if I want to make like a swing and rock record or an acoustic record or somewhere in between. I don't know if it's an emergency record or a solo record or somewhere in between. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm not rushing. I know that my, 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 my sort of, the reason I'm hesitating is uh, I got a lot on the go, but also I, um, I know that once I decide or I, I have the focus and the vision for it, it'll take over my brain. It'll take over my life. <laughs> it will, it will then I'll, then I'll finish and I'll be in the record world and I'll, everything will fall to the wayside and then I'll get into artwork and then that'll take whatever. And then it'll come out and I'll be doing like the press, which is great. I mean, I, I enjoy all these things. I'm not complaining. And then, uh, and then I'll be on the road. And so you start the process and a year or two years later, like you're busy, you know? So, I'm just not, I'm not diving in because I'm not ready to commit to the work. Right. Um, I look forward to it, but I'm not ready to commit to it yet. Okay. No, that's, that's, that's fair. We talked about Clayton Park earlier and I made a note here as we were talking to ask you about, uh, because you guys, you did a big uh, Thresh Hermit archival release uh, for the reunion and you, you put everything basically together in a box set, like everything, which was amazing. But yeah. but Clayton Park is still looming large for people, particularly of my generation, a little bit younger. Well, I mean, you and I are the same age, practically. I think you got a couple of years on me, but you know what I mean. People are mm-hmm. in, the, in the Thresh Hermit pantheon. Clayton Park looms large. Is there a plan to maybe give this a vinyl treatment at some point? Because you you've been doing yeah, I, I definitely want to. I have to kind of talk to the guys in the band about it, but I'd like to put it out on New Scotland. Uh, the challenge is there's a couple of challenges not one of them is not a huge one but it um it would need to be a double vinyl because the record's too long for a single yeah um which is no big deal but the other problem is is all the original artwork's been lost oh. um and so and it's only ever now reproduced at cd size so how do you recreate that artwork at vinyl size is a little bit of work because oh, you can't okay. just blow it up without it getting all pixely and we don't have any files for it anywhere or any images <laughs> who uh who, who did the, who did the artwork uh, Ian McGettigan, uh, whose archival skills, maybe, uh, leave a little bit to be uh, 
uh, improved upon, and I love Ian. But yeah, he's he's moved a lot, and he's had a lot. He has a lot of stuff. I, I, I'm not going to say it's maybe maybe it is out there somewhere. I, I should ask Ian again, but it's not doesn't seem like it's immediately presenting itself. So um, that that is a, uh, that's that, a, that's an obstacle. But you've you've done new album artwork for reissue. Yeah, I'll do new album artwork if I have to. I just it's more like I do want to do that. I've just I've been building a studio. And um, really, I'm working in a new studio now, the New Scotland Yard, and, and I'm excited about it. But it's been it's taken all my brain power as well as I've been on the road trying to finance the, uh, the, 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 the renovations to the studio space. And yeah. so the idea of like putting stuff out, like there was a while there when I was taking, you know, stuff and making records with the, the little bit of gravy that was left over from tours. Um, but right now the idea of putting out records is very much on hold with the idea of like, uh, a renovation. And so I'm, I'm picking my battles is what I'm saying. I'm building the new Scotland yard as opposed to putting out new Scotland records. Okay. And, um, and, uh, I will get back to the record side of things. Um, and I think, I think Clayton park, I like to think it would be a bit of a shoe in, in terms of making its money back. Um, cause I think there's maybe a thousand people out there who might be interested in it. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, I, um, I just want to do it when it makes sense, and also I, I got I actually, and it's a conversation I have to have with the guys really more than anything because it's not like it's not my record to put out. Um, we have we collectively in Thrushman have the rights to it, but um, we uh, I have to really. So it's coming. It's just I'm taking my time with it. I actually really look forward to putting that on vinyl because I, I it would make me nothing would make me happier for sure. I mean the Hermit reunion went well. I understand, right? Like it was a fun experience, uh, and you guys had. Uh, from what I heard, unfortunately, I was away or something, and sadly missed all the shows, which was kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, w- w- is it something that you would revisit again? Is is is, is I mean, would would maybe reissuing this record maybe prompt uh, some more hermit activity? You're kind of you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, <laughs> I, it was it was it, you know you have to ask us all at the same time and read the looks on our faces. We had a great time on the reunion. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, I don't think anyone completely bars the idea of uh, out of doing it again but at the same time there'd have to be a reason and maybe that would be a reason but at the same time the the memories and the the the, the bang of the last one um is still fresh in our minds you yeah, know? yeah. Um, or not fresh but still relatively close it's not like another 10 years has passed so um i don't know if everybody would want to embark on that okay. super soon or not but yeah, I, you yeah. know I, I really don't know man i had a great time doing it it's just like I, i'm i, I my one of I'm not a big revisit. I'm not somebody who revisits stuff very often. Um, the Thrushermit box set was like epic and fun because it was a band that was ten years gone. You know, yeah. um, I've done a couple things emergency wise, like putting out the DVD that we did years ago was super taxing because <laughs> <laughs> I had to review, revisit all this footage and stuff, and then also doing this emergency false alarms thing was oh, fun. Yeah. But again, like uh, that stuff to me is a really I find it really like it. I, I only do it every once in a while when I've really got some downtime. Other than that, I'm always trying to push forward because I find moving forward is a more interesting place than in the past. Yeah, uh, and I like to think that my best work is yet to come. I don't know; remains to be seen. But that's what I'm. That's what I'm aiming for. Well, what else are you supposed to do? That's what we do as human beings. We hope the best exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If 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 the best times are behind us, then boo. Then then basically back to the future we go. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you started New Scotland, I think, with relatively modest uh, objectives. How's that working out for you? The record label itself. 
It's a pretty modest objective, for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I'm objectively modest. No, I, uh, I, um, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, it's good. I really. It's a nice home for some cool records by people that I care about and have worked with. I think. I think it's going to have kind of like an ebb and flow and a life of its own as time goes on. I just wanted to kind of have a nice little collection of work that I was involved with or I took an interest in. Um, there's not any big, like, you know, I don't have, I mean, the record industry is all is so screwed up now anyway, right? So mm-hmm. what, what is a record label? But other than maybe some degree of curation, and so that's what I set out to do. It's not, there's not a massive financial objective with it. Um, uh, and I don't, and I don't foresee that changing in any time soon because, you know, I don't sell a lot of records. And so, and most of the people on New Scotland are like, peers and, and contemporaries of mine who probably, who maybe don't quite have the profile that I have. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about record sales, you know, it's about community and, and, uh, and a bit of collective energy and, and also a place just so that maybe in 10 years if somebody, somebody hears the, an Anna Eggy song that I worked on and goes, well, I like this, this is cool. And maybe it somehow leads them to like New Scotland where I put out, you know, they're going to go, well, there's all this other stuff that was done at that studio. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, this is cool. You know, she sang on three. Cool. Let me check out who's this guy, Joel Plaskett. You know, like, I just like the idea of like, over time, the work that you do finds its way into the public sphere in different ways. You never really know what's going to lead you anywhere. You never know who's going to hear a song. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just, I'm still waiting for Keith Urban to cover Nowhere with you, man. It's going to happen. <laughs> you, think, you think that's something he'll, he'll, he's interested in doing? Have you heard tell, or are you just hoping that it happens? I don't know, man. He should, you know. It's not got hit written all over it. All we got to do is change Dartmouth to, like, either someplace in Australia or Nashville. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little surprised you have any kind of Keith Urban fixation, but that's kind of interesting. I, I have none. It's it's actually, it has it has more to do with his, uh, you know, it, 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 it's really, I'm just trying to think of, like, a dude with some rock leanings in the country world that could take nowhere with you and uh, and, and turn it into, like, a really annoying smash hit. <laughs> so that I don't you know, so that my life on the road can, you know, like is a. So then, when, then when you see me on my tour bus, you know where it came from. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. <laughs> well, once again, the Joel Plaskett Emergency's latest record is 2012 Scrappy Happiness, and they return to Guelph for a show at the River Run Center on Friday, September 13th, as part of the 25th anniversary edition of the Eden Mills Writers Festival. They're also performing at the James Street Super Crawl in Hamilton on Saturday, September 14th. For more information about these things, visit supercrawl.com. EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca and JoelPlaskett.com. Joel, can we go to a song right now before we end this thing? Do you have anything by Keith Urban? Uh, <laughs> I'll have to check. Um, uh, how about uh, you, you? You mean one of my songs? Well, um, pre- preferably, yes. Uh, that would make yeah. Play, play, uh, play, um, play somewhere else off Scrappy Happiness. I like that one. Okay, why did that come to mind? Um. Uh, I was actually uh, talking over symphony arrangements uh, with uh, Dave Christensen, who's doing my symphony show here in Halifax, and that's a song that's being uh, bantered about to play with the symphony. So it was fresh. I was, I was, you know, I was revisiting it as an underdog track from Scrappy Happy. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> that, that very few people mention, but I know it's Marsh's favorite on the record. So nice. Well, let's check yeah. it out. The Somewhere Else by the Joel Plaskett Emergency. Joel, thanks so much for your time today, and I, I can't wait to see you guys play uh, very soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Vish.
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.